We have been ta- talking over the past three weeks about relationships. We are talking about the new mission's uh, tagline for the church, expanding Christ's community through worship, discipleship, and relationship. And we're focusing in on um, relationship these four weeks. Now, four weeks can't exhaust a discussion on relationship. There's just so much. There's far more cut than is actually making it into sermons um, because there's just so much to be done. And relationship is not one of those things that you can actually approach from an intellectual standpoint. It has to be from a practical standpoint. Um, you know, we don't want people in ivory towers saying, well, relationships should be this way. That's one of the wonderful things about Christ, is that Christ didn't reserve His seat in glory and save us from there, but actually came into our world, came into our situation, came into our brokenness, and redeemed us from within. The whole incarnation speaks that God is for us and is entering into relationship with us when we could not come into relationship with Him. You know, the law was a way, sorry, my mic is just kind of giving me a little fit this morning, Um, but the law was there so that we could have a proper relationship with God. Now, during this past week, who has kept all 600 laws? I was hoping someone else would preach for me. Um, we, we can't keep that perfectly. We have decided to strike out on our own. When it came to Genesis 3, we were deceived, but we were deceived into thinking we could do it ourselves, that we could cut ourselves off from the source of all life, from the source of all relationship, and make a go of it. And what we have found is we can't really do that. And so now we are stuck in the the now but not yet. We have Christ as our Savior. We have the ability for a redeemed relationship with God. We have the ability for a redeemed relationship with one another. And yet still sin uh, and, and brokenness reign in this world, albeit penultimately, but, but they are still here and we have to deal with that. And so as we discussed over the weeks, first of all, we talked about our relationship, um, our, our re- relationship within the congregation. What does that look like? And we talked about the works of the flesh, and we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and how those can uh, indicate different characteristics, and how the fruit of the Spirit are a natural outflowing of a life that is hidden in Christ. In the next week, we talked about, you know, what's our relationship to other churches? What's our relationship to, to grace and to victory? What's our relationship to Dutil? What's our relationship to the tiny churches that I don't even know their name yet because I haven't been around long enough? And we talked about the fact that, that instead of being, you know, kind of uh, competitors, we are co-laborers. And that's probably the first time I've used that term and, and maybe the best way to describe it. We are co-laborers. We're on the same team. We're striving for the same thing, and so we shouldn't look to, to be in competition, but we should be look to, to be strengthening and spelling each other off towards one another because we can do things that other congregations cannot, and other congregations cannot do things that, uh, or can do things that we cannot. We can attempt to be all things to all people, but in, in the end, only Christ can be all things to all people. And so we, rec- we recognize our limits. 
And it's funny because the more we live into our limits, the more we can allow God to be God. Last week, we talked uh, in the theme of Vacation Bible School in Romans, talking about let's, let's strive for the things that bring peace. Actually, if you listen to the podcast, you heard the fact that that word strive actually has the sense of harass. Let's harass for the things that, that bring peace. You really have to go after it. And the things that build one another up. It's so easy to tear down. And we're so good at it. We can burn it to the ground in an instant, but can we build it up? And so today we come to the question now of the world. How do Christians interact with the world? What is our basis? What is our foundation? What do we go to? Now, it would be easy to, to slip into a whole on, okay, this is, this is a method for evangelism kind of sermon. But I want to deal with the identity. I want to deal with the values and the attitudes before we ever talk about behaviors. Because if we go into engaging the world with the wrong identity, values, and attitudes, they will see through us. They will see through us. And they do. So many churches that I've talked to in my, in my uh, work on committee on ministry, we need new blood. Why? Well, we're, we're getting old and we need someone to take over. Ah, there's your mission statement. The world knows it before you do. And so we've got to deal with the underneath the hood before we can ever deal with driving the car. And so, to that end, we're going to go to John chapter 17. So, um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We're in verses 20 through 26. Now, this is Jesus' last um, major prayer before he is arrested and before he is turned over and, and, and we get into the Easter story. But as we come into this, I want you to hear this. Jesus is praying for you and for me in this text. Hear that when he he is, is speaking. So John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, hear the word of the Lord as I share it with you. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that is, through his disciples' message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them 
and that I myself may be in them. This is God's Word to us today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's, it's humbling to think that, that you prayed for us. That in your moments before the greatest injustice of the world was perpetrated, and that you were sent to the cross and you knew what you would endure, your heart turned to the Father and to us. Help us to never take that for granted. To know that, that in the darkness of the world, you made us beloved. And help us to understand what that means for our attitude, for, for our stance towards this world for which you died. Open your words to us so that we can see with our eyes, hear with our ears, and understand with our hearts, and turn and see you and what you have for us. Strengthen the words of, of my mouth for mine are, my words are empty, just a vapor in the wind. But you, O oh Lord, you hold the very words of eternal life. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we come into discussing this passage, as we come into um, seeing what it may mean for us here. We want to, to keep in mind that, that what I'll be saying here is that the church's ministry to the world is meant to be an extension of the Father and the Son's unity. Our ministry to the world is meant to be an extension of the Father and then of the Son's unity. And hopefully you see a little bit of that going on in the, in the, the uh, passage. About a hundred years ago, probably a little less than, um, one of the Niebuhr brothers, two theologians out of Germany, um, I think it was H. Richard, uh, wrote a, a very influential book on the relationship between Christ and culture. And it was entitled, Christ and Culture. Um, not everyone can come up with a brilliant title. But Niebuhr posited that there were five different ways that Christians could approach the world. Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ in and culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. Don't worry about writing those down, you can Google it. But there were five different kind of ways that we could approach the world, and he had examples for all of them. The Anabaptists, the, the monastic tradition were the Christ against culture. Get out. It is too dirty. We are going to get contaminated. Don't drink the water. You're in Flint. There is the Christ of culture, which is that, that, that the best of human society is actually a reflection of God, and we should we should embrace it and we should 
glory in it and we should celebrate it and we should just put it all out there. So let's, let's try for the best society that we can. Christ above culture is, is basically, there are two ways. Uh, Christ of culture, by the way, is, is kind of the main lines. If you, if you look historically, we have been the Christ of culture kind of, uh, of um, stream in, in that. The Christ above culture is that, that well, the world, there, there's a kind of a bottom line that you can go to, but, but the bottom line is actually a little higher for Christians, and so we've we got to live to that standard. It's, there are two different things going on here, and, and we just have to be above it. Christ uh, and culture in paradox, man, I'm getting tongue twisted today. I had my coffee a little too late, I know, decaf. Um, But Christ and culture in paradox was this idea that that the world is a dirty and a messy place. And by the way, this is the Lutherans. The, The world is this dirty and messy place, and in order to be a faithful Christian, you actually have to get into the mud. It's like wrestling with a pig. It's you're gonna get dirty. You got to do it, but you're going to get dirty in the process. And then Christ, the transformer of culture, is this idea that the world is sinful, the, the culture is sinful, but out of that sinfulness, Christ can redeem and can transform in a way that makes it holy again. And this has been the historical, um, and not the political, the historical evangelical movement has been a part of that. It's interesting because as you look through them, there's no one way that you go, well, that's, that's got to be it. Each of them is seeing a little part of it. And, and, and so there are different ways to, re- to relate, and how do we know how we are to act in a certain way, in, in certain situations. As Jesus was winding down his ministry, as he was preparing for his crucifixion, in John, we have this, this massive prayer that is recorded. You know, in, in the Gospels, in the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus prays, he kind of goes off and prays, and the main thing that we get is that the James, Peter, and John just can't stay awake. We get that cut scene. We get the fact that he is going on, and he's like, I have been gone for how long, and you are already snoozing? Get up! And here we get more of the content we understand that he prayed so hard that, that sweat was dropping like blood onto the ground. And here we are, after he prayed for himself, after he prayed for his disciples, he prays for those who would believe in them, believe in him through their testimony, through the apostles' testimony. That is us. We are the ones who believe because of the testimony of the apostles. Because if that link were broken right at, the, right at the beginning, nothing goes on. Did you know that the church is always just one generation away from extinction? We're always just one generation away from extinction. It just takes one generation to not disciple the next, and the jig is up. 
And yet, despite all those foibles, all those failures, Christ was praying for that word to go out. And I'll tell you what, if you look at church history, you say the only way the church exists is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is proof in God enough because of the ways that we have messed it up. And so when Jesus prays, he prays for us. And, you know, these are last words in a sense. He is down to the wire. And, and when you're down to the wire, you say the things that matter. You say the things that are really important. You know, when you get down to the wire, you don't start thinking about the unfinished projects in your office. You don't think about the unfinished basement. You don't think about uh, the, the uh, as we went through my mom's house, the unfinished Afghan that needs to be sent off to someone. You start thinking about the things that really matter for for. 35 years, there at least, there was a box up in her closet that contained some very important things, and she kept telling me the one day, I want you to see my, my baptismal certificate. I want you to see my baptismal certificate. And I'm like, Mom, yes, I'm a pastor, but I'm not interested in every baptismal certificate on the face of the earth. I later found out, as she told me where that box was, that it contains some of her most treasured memories of the family, including a letter from 1967 that my dad wrote to her as they were engaged. When it came down to the wire, the really, really important things came out. And so as we look at Jesus' words here, it, it, we would think that, all right, uh, Lord, I pray that they would not botch it up. Lord, I pray that they would, they would remember the important things. Lord, I, re- I pray that they would, that they would remember uh, you know, everything I've taught them over the last three years. No, what he comes and says is, Lord, above all things, I want them to share in the unity that I have with you. And I want them to share in the in the unity that that we have enjoyed since before the beginning of time, for all eternity. I want them to be so unified that people can't help but notice who they are, and through their unity, that the world would understand who we are. Huh. Interesting. Unity in the Father and in the Son would not have been my first guess. It's not usually the first thing that we teach in the church, is it? We teach about the history of the church. We teach about the beliefs of the church. We teach about the, the, the structures of the church. But, but the unity with the Father and the Son... And so this is such a, a, a different teaching from what we are used to that we, it's going to take us a while to get this. Our ministry, the ministry of the church, not just this particular church, but of any church, is authenticated. It is made real by our unity in the Trinity. Wow, when's the last time the church taught on the unity, on unity in the Trinity? 
We don't do that because we're concerned about programs, we're concerned about methods, we're concerned about other doctrines that rise to the top. But here Jesus is and he prays for this. And he says, may they also be in us. There in verse 21. More than anything else, Jesus wants us to have life in He and the Father and in the Holy Spirit. And we go, what does that even look like? We teach about the Trinity. We say God is three in one, but we rarely consider what that means. It means that God Almighty has existed in community for all of eternity, in perfect unity, in perfect community. And that's so hard for us to realize because how many of us had an argument with a family member on the way to church? No, don't raise your hands. Don't. Don't do it. How many of us struggle with with relationships within our families? How many of us struggle with relationships within the church? How many of us struggle with with the, the failures and foibles and even just the quirks of the people around us? And yet, Jesus wants us to live in a community that resembles the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, one in unity, but distinct in persons throughout all time. The history of the church sometimes can seem like a history of partings. I say that as, you know, I've, uh, mentioned a couple weeks ago that I've read the, some of the minutes of the church and, and I've seen some of the things that, that we as a congregation have gone through, pages and pages of baptisms, pages and pages of, of faith professions, pages and pages of a community coming together. And I go, where did that community go? What happened? As we think about that, it's it's hard to get our minds around what Jesus is asking here for. And in order to get our minds around it, we've we've got to look to other areas of Scripture. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a verse that gets read a lot at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it doesn't, doesn't delight in the wrongs. Oh, we make that great, mushy, romantic love. But that was not the intent of Paul's writing to the Corinthians there. Paul's intent in writing to the Corinthians in, in that section was to remind us as to what the characteristic quality of the people of God was to be. The love that binds us together. The the love of the community of God is patient and it is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Could you imagine a church that kept no record of wrongs? There almost inevitably is a secondary set of, of historical records lodged in the minds of people Remembering all of the wrongs. And yet, 
as a people, we are called to keep no record of wrongs, just as Christ does not keep the record of wrongs on us, but instead took those wrongs to the cross and buried them in the tomb. The beginning of our ministry to the world actually begins with our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. We, we want to go to programs, we want to go to methods, we want to go to, to ways of behaving, but really it starts with our relationship with each other and our relationship with the triune God. Jesus is praying that we would be a part of his eternal relationship with the Father. Yet we more often define ourselves more by our differences than by our common bonds in Christ Jesus. It's very interesting. I was going through and um, I've mentioned uh, this study by Barna they did recently. One of the questions that they asked in the general population of ages 13 and over, what causes people to doubt Christianity? And I've mentioned this stat before, but I want to put it into context here a little bit more and drive the point home. People of no faith, the single largest barrier to, to, their, to faith in Christianity, by uh, 42% responded that it was the hypocrisy of religious people. And I want to put that into context. Human suffering only got 30% of people. That means that, that disease, cancer, the loss of a loved one, abject poverty, is less of a barrier than the way that the, God's people have conducted themselves. Only 24% said conflict in the world prevents them from believing in Christianity. The war in Ukraine causes less people to doubt than the church. Oh, does that hurt? That's a painful realization. That's a, that's a painful statement and, and one that we want to be mindful of as we embark on, on expanding Christ's community and understanding that the, the number one thing that might be in people's way is us. And we have to recover the way that we were called to live as followers of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? How do we digest that and then come out not so morally dejected that we can't move, but, but energized so that we can live in a way that creates a community of intrigue, a community that people want to be a part of, a community that Jesus died to create? Let me suggest two concrete things that we can do this week that advances Christ's kingdom and expands Christ's community. First of all is that we need to be humble. Remembering that Jesus is the answer, not us. 
you know, so often that, that uh, I have come across attitudes that um, towards people who aren't in the church that, well, they just need to get here. They just need to be here. Generally, it is from those of us, and I include myself because, you know, growing up in the 80s in Newcastle really didn't feel like the 50s. Um, but, but those of us who lived in Christendom, those of us who knew when we could just say, hey, it's Sunday morning, you need to be there, that that, that is not the way that the world operates anymore. That, uh, that is operating from a, power, from a place of power and influence and coercion. In humility, we don't operate that way. You know, Christ could have come down and said, hey, knock it off. You know that whole promise that you, you would die thing? I'm just waiting. We wouldn't terribly appreciate that from the Savior of the world. Instead, he came meek, mild. He came full of grace and truth. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so our first step is to be humble. Our first step is not to exalt ourselves, but our first step is to lower ourselves and to serve and to think of ourselves not, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but in humility to consider others better than ourselves. What are the ways that we try to exert ourselves? What are the ways that we try to, to exert our rights? One of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is this story about... Uh, a man going to heaven in all the ways that people get, get sidelined and have no idea what heaven is like. One of the great refrains early on as people are waiting for this, this bus to, to take them uh, to heaven is people saying, you know, I have my rights. I have my rights. I was like, wow, Lewis, that could have been written today. It's such a, a powerful thing. And then I looked at when it was published. Because I thought, you know, this had to have been written later than 1950-ish, once the effects of the war had worn off, once people weren't thinking about the common good and, you know, defeating evil in the world. And then I read the copyright date, 1945. In the middle of World War II, fighting the Nazi challenge, we were still sinful enough to let that resonate with us. And Lewis could see it as an effective enough comment on society to include it in his book. And I thought, wow, we really are that sinful. And so not thinking of ourselves more highly than our, we ought, but but in humility, considering others better than ourselves. What is one place that we can yield ourselves to others this week? Where is one place you can yield yourself? Where is one place that I can yield myself to others this week? Be humble. Jesus is the answer, not us. And if he can wrap the towel and serve, so can we. But as well, we want to stay connected. 
you know, I wish I could say that cancel culture was just out in the secular world, but it's not. It's, it's us too. And I thought about that as I was putting this sermon together. I thought, you know, I, this is the, now the third week in a row, and I feel like, I felt like as I was putting this together that, you know, if he mentions Barna one more time, I am going straight out those doors. And we have those thoughts, you know, if this doesn't meet my need, if this doesn't connect to me, if this isn't the way I want it, we have a Burger King kind of mindset, don't we? Have it your way. You rule. We have been steeped in a culture that wants to cater to all of our needs, to say that we can have things any way we want it, and if we don't get it that way, we get it free. Just let Starbucks mess up your, your coffee once. Like That's the greatest thing. Not only do I get a coffee that, all right, I'll deal with, but then I get a free one. You know, have it your way. You deserve a break today. Special orders don't upset us, if you can remember that jingle. And it's so easy for us to fragment, and it's so easy for us to go our different ways. It's amazing to think that it took 900 years for the church to have a real fracture. Oh, we teetered and we tottered and we, we, we kicked some people out, and, but, but we kept together for 900 years in the wake of Christ. And now, we fracture over the most minor of things, the most secondary of doctrines, the, the least of forms. And so we want to, to stay together. And I have a, a letter from the early church. As the, the Roman Empire was, was on them, as they were oppressing them, but at the same time didn't know what to do, this was written of Christians. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they're not understood, they're put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but, but, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for the hatred. What did that community look like? That community that held together, that, that took insult as blessing, that took, that took insult as joy, that took punishment as life. And they stayed together. We will not be known for programs. We will not be known for ministries. We will not be known... for buildings, or our polity. <laughs> but
but we will be known by our unity with the triune God. And that will authenticate our witness to the world and tell people who Jesus is. Be humble. Stay connected. Look to the Trinity. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. because you have given us a calling that we could never figure out for ourselves. You have given us life that we could never have for ourselves. You have prayed for us in ways that we could never pray for ourselves. Help us to to hear that and to live lives that are renewed, to, to live lives that show the love you have for the Father and that the Father has for you. That is our hope as we seek to engage this world for which you died. And in that, and in that love, help us to go forth from this place bearing you in our hearts and in our actions. This we pray in your name, O Jesus. Amen.